Hello and welcome to the Hemsons Procurement Teams podcast. Three of the partners in our specialist procurement law team will be presenting this podcast today, which will be covering the requirements for procurement law in the current pandemic and then have a quick look towards the future. I'm Andrew Daly and I'm joined by Deborah Ramshaw. Hello. And Oliver Kreitch. Hi there. So to start off with, we know how incredibly busy all NHS procurement teams currently are, and so we thought long and hard as to whether to run a session that would eat into your already packed diaries. We therefore decided to do a podcast rather than a webinar so that you can listen when you do have a spare moment or as things hopefully start to calm down. So before we begin, we all wanted to say a big, big thank you for everything you are doing in these very difficult and unique circumstances. Procurement teams are finally starting to get the recognition we all knew they should have received a long time ago. We really do appreciate what you are doing, so thank you. In summary, in this podcast, we're going to cover the following six topics. The first one, which I will address, is does COVID-19 change the requirements of procurement law? The second, Oliver will uh, look at what are the flexibilities under the regulations and as, it, and as explored in PPN 0120. Deborah will then move on to cover thirdly, what do those flexibilities enable practice and how, so what do those flexibilities enable in practice and how long they will realistically apply before the risk is likely to outweigh the benefits. And then fourthly, how do you as procuring authorities go about assessing the level of risk of challenge in the current climate and what are the likely factors that should be taken into account? I will then pick up, can you delay or abandon the current process? What would you need to consider if you were doing so? And finally, Oliver will look towards the future. What might a new normal look like? show what flexibilities there are in procurement law and whether or not these can be used at this time. So we'll be exploring each um, throughout the uh, podcast, but what the PPN has highlighted is that when you are considering procurement in this current uh, time, you can look at whether or not you can use Regulation 32, either to make a direct award due to reasons of extreme urgency, or whether or not you could make a direct award due to absence of competition or protection of exclusive rights, i.e. there is only one person that can provide your requirement at this time. Um, those um, two exemptions also apply to the light touch regime. The PPN highlights that you can call off from an existing framework or dynamic purchasing system, um, whether or not you can make a direct award, for example. And it's that uh, you are able to run accelerated procedures, um, accelerating down your timescales um, because of the reasons of urgency. PN then goes on to look at whether or not you can extend or vary an existing contract and all of the provisions of Regulation 72. We're going to be looking at those few things to highlight at the beginning. Of course, if you're a CCG, um, or indeed NHS England, you also need to remember the requirements of the National Health Service Petition Regulations 2013. Um, having said that, the light touch regime, uh, given the current supremacy of European law, should uh, also need to comply uh, with any internal procedures, your standing orders and standing financial instructions. Uh, that may be because you uh, need to walk 
things or the requirement to get quotes, etc. But there is a need to ensure that you have um, a detailed audit trail and that you are following your necessary procedures. In so, um, having uh, set out the introduction, I will um, hand over to Oliver, and he will uh, go through uh, the flexibilities in a little bit more detail. I'm going to explore the flexibilities in a bit more detail under the regulations and as they've been expanded on in PPN 0120. I think it's important firstly to say we're going to do this. And the main reason is that you can see that you may need to secure items urgently or without conducting a process. So therefore you'd want to know how you could get away with doing countering any procurement law difficulties. So that's the real purpose for looking at this. So what we're going to look at is two sets of potential circumstances. Firstly, how does the supply works? And secondly, how does the law help you, or does the PPN expand on, extending or varying an existing contract? We're going to look at them in that order. As Andrew's point is that the PPN is not law, it is guidance, and therefore the regulations are the key starting point here. But the PPN is of assistance in interpreting the regulations, and it might also be persuasive in the event of any challenge on the PPN already, and we'll provide a link to it within the email advertising this podcast in case you want to read through the PPN in full detail if you haven't done so already. So what we'll do now is go through the potential options covered by the PPN. So the first one is a direct award due to reasons of extreme urgency under Regulation 32.2c, and this is the main focus of the PPN. There's also another element that we'll go on to cover where you can make a direct award in the absence of competition or for the protection of exclusive rights. This is less likely to apply, so we see exemption first. This urgency ground in Regulation 32.2c enables a direct award insofar as it's strictly necessary, wherefore reasons of urgency, brought about by events that are unforeseeable by the contracting authority, the time limits for the open or restricted procedures or the competitive procedures of negotiation cannot be completed. And it's also worthy of note under Regulation 32.4 that the circumstances that you invoke to justify the urgency must not in any event be attributable to you, the contracting authority. PPN indicates that for immediate COVID-related requirements, this ground, i.e. the Regulation 32 urgency ground, is likely to be available. And the PPN acknowledges that COVID is serious and its consequences clearly pose a risk to life. It also goes on to expressly say that Regulation 32.2c is designed to deal with this sort of situation. So if you can fit within it, it's very likely to help you. The Commission has also published a separate communication called Guidance on Using the Public Procurement Framework in Emergency Situations Related to COVID-19. And in that communication, the Commission also confirms that in its view, the current crisis presents extreme and unforeseeable urgency. Both communications, however, also emphasize that the urgency must be linked to what is actually being purchased. You can't use the urgency as a catch-all, so you might want to, for example, compare the purchase of masks to the purchase of orthopaedics and how one can clearly be linked to the urgency generated by COVID-19, whilst the other one isn't. Both the PPN and the Commission's guidance also make a clear distinction between filling an urgent need, which might not be possible within the time limits needed to conduct even an accelerated procurement, and stockpiling or planning for a future emergency or urgency, um, which are clearly more likely to be possible to achieve through the more usual procurement procedures or frameworks available. In other words, therefore, what is procured should be limited to both what is necessary to meet the urgent demand and in terms of the contract length when you are relying on the urgency exemption. In the absence of an appropriate framework agreement, direct award, for example, the Regulation 32.2c urgency ground is most likely to be the direct award ground of choice for meeting your 
immediate requirements. Moving on to the other potential exemption under Regulation 32, this is a direct award due to the absence of competition or for the protection of exclusive rights. Under this, the first ground, Regulation 32.2b2, allows you to directly award a contract where competition is absent for technical reasons. Under the second possibility, Regulation 32.2b3, for the protection of exclusive rights, including intellectual property rights. But in either of those cases, you can only use them to award a contract where no reasonable alternative or substitute exists, and the absence of competition is not a result of artificially narrowing the parameters of the procurement. You can therefore see this is likely to be very fact-specific. For example, is it really likely that for many of the urgent requirements, there will only be one provider for technical reasons within the meaning of this regulation, and that no reasonable alternative substitute exists? This will need to be considered very carefully on a requirement-by-requirement requirement basis. Whether you rely on this ground or the Regulation 32-2C urgency ground, we strongly recommend that you keep an audit trail to demonstrate why you've reached a particular conclusion. Um, this will be particularly important in defending your decision uh, in the event of any challenge. The next possibility that's available is a call-off from an existing framework or dynamic purchasing system. The PPN highlights that existing frameworks should always be considered. However, it also confirms that if you are using a particular framework, you'll still need to comply with each of its requirements as the same way that you would for a non-COVID procurement. For example, do you fall within the list of those entitled to call off? Does the framework cover your requirement? Are you able to make a direct award for what you need and how you need it? If not, you may have to follow a mini procedure, which might not actually meet your needs quickly enough. And you will also need to use the form of contract prescribed by the framework agreement and consider whether or not that's actually suitable. Whilst framework agreements are therefore a potentially useful route in these circumstances, the situation, insofar as they're concerned, is not really any different to using them for non-COVID procurements. Finally, under this limb of awarding new contracts, it's worth considering whether you could use a standard procedure with accelerated timescales for reasons of urgency. The first Regulation 32 2C ground that we covered, which allows for a direct award for reasons of extreme urgency, is only available if it's not possible to comply with the time limits for the open, restricted and negotiated procedures. The PPM therefore highlights the possibility of conducting one of those procedures and accelerating it wherever possible. For example, it's possible to shorten the time limit for the submission of tenders under the open procedure to 15 days in accordance with Regulation 27.5, where there is a state of urgency duly substantiated by the contracting authority, which renders the usual what would be a 35 or 30 day time limit impracticable. You would, however, still need to conduct a standstill period. So in reality, we're talking about a month or so of such a procedure. Whilst you appreciate how pushed procurement teams are, you can also see that, depending upon the need, conducting an accelerated procedure may be a valid route to market. It therefore increases the risk on uh, relying on the Regulation 32 urgency ground if you do not need to award your contract within a month or so, and you could arguably have run an accelerated procedure. So those are the conditions relating to the award of new contracts, and it's also worth then considering how you might be able to extend or vary an existing contract. So as we all know, the circumstances in which it's possible to extend or vary an existing contract is set out in Regulation 72. If your proposed variation or extension is not covered by one of the Regulation 72 safe harbours, then it will result in a material change, and you'll need to consider your procurement obligations as if the proposed varied or extended contract was a fresh opportunity. Now, there are various tests that could apply under Regulation 72, but the most likely one is under 72.1c. 
which applies if the need for the modification to the contract is brought about by circumstances a diligent contracting authority could not have foreseen, and the modification does not alter the overall nature of the contract, and any increase in price does not exceed 50% of the value of the original contract or framework agreement. And it's worth noting that these requirements are cumulative, so you need to meet all of them for the exemption to apply. It's also worth noting that if you wanted to rely on this to uh, extend or vary a contract, you'd need to publish a notice under Regulation 72.3 to tell everyone that this is the ground that you're wanting to rely on, which obviously potentially increases the risk of scrutiny. Whilst this is a potentially useful ground for many requirements, you can also see that potential difficulties could arise if the grounds for modification could, for example, have been foreseen, whether that's by you or a diligent contracting authority. And therefore, the longer that COVID continues, the greater the potential risk of challenge on that basis. It's also worth noting that this ground is only available if the modification does not alter the overall nature of the contract. And you could see that it would therefore be riskier to rely on it to introduce into an existing contract the supply of a product or service that is fundamentally different to the product or service that was supplied under the contract from its inception. If you have concerns as to the potential of using this first ground, the 721C ground, it's also worth considering 721B and 728, which we'll also cover in turn now. So the 721B test allows for additional works, services, or supplies to be provided by the original contractor that have both become necessary and were not included within the original procurement. And the following three cumulative conditions need to be met, which is where a change of contractor cannot be made for economic or technical reasons, such as the requirements of interchangeability or interoperability, and they would cause significant inconvenience or a substantial duplication of costs and provided that any increase in price does not exceed 50% of the value of the original contract. You would also again need to publish a notice under Regulation 72.3 if you wanted to rely on this ground. But you can see that it might be useful to procure more of the same or a closely related product or service from an existing supplier in the current COVID climate, and you could extend your contract to do so without needing to procure a new supply. Finally, it's always worth considering whether the proposed change will fall within Regulation 72.8, which sets out the types of change that are not considered to be material for the purposes of the regulations, because if your change does fall within one of those grounds, then it will again not cause a procurement law problem. I hope this has been helpful, and I'll now hand you over to Deborah, who will cover how flexible these potential approaches are likely to be in reality, and also how long they are likely to be available. Thanks, Oliver. Um, yes, I'm going to look at how flexible these potential grounds are in practice. And I think, first of all, it's important to say that if an authority wants to rely on one of the flexibilities which Oliver's just outlined, then it is important that you uh, record the reasons for doing so and the justifications for doing so. So, for example, um, one of the clear factors is that the requirement that you have, either by contract um, direct award or by variation, is that the requirement has to have been caused by the pandemic. It must be limited to what is necessary to meet the immediate needs of the contracting authority. And it also seems clear from case law that the quantities purchased under an urgent requirement must address the current situation rather than uh, stockpiling for a future emergency. And so those are the sorts of aspects that you should be documenting to support your decision. So it's really what are the immediate requirements that this pandemic has caused, and those are the sorts of requirements that you should be looking at in terms of the flexibilities we've outlined. So what is clear, I think, and hopefully that has be made clear is that 
the, the current situation, the current pandemic, should not be used as a blanket exemption for simply avoiding procurements uh, where you would otherwise have to do so. And I think it's also the case that as time goes by, the ability to legitimately use the urgency exemption potentially diminishes. For example, uh, the position no longer becomes unforeseeable and there may in fact be time to run accelerated procurements as Oliver's um, highlighted earlier. So, in all these cases, and, uh, and for those of you who do um, seek our advice, it's always a case of making um, a risk assessment, making a risk-based decision in accordance with the grounds available, the particular requirements, uh, the particular market, for example. And clearly, if you're using COVID-19 to justify a non-COVID-19 related procurement decision, for example, making a direct award for something entirely unrelated to the um, scenario, that will, of course, be higher risk. So, whilst the pandemic um, will give rise to the possibility of making direct awards and varying contracts, our advice is that in order to minimise the risks of challenge, each decision should be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. Don't um, have a blanket approach to procurement um, during this time. And ideally, every decision you make in terms of procurement and relying on one of the flexibilities in the PPN should record the following. So set out the ground that you're relying on to make the direct award, accelerate the timescales, vary the contract, etc. If possible, you can try and rely on more than one ground. Um, there's, there's no problem with that at all, and it potentially increases the chances of successfully defending any challenge that comes up in the future. Set out the reasons for reliance on the ground or those grounds if you have more than one. So what are the particular reasons in that case for having to, for example, make a direct award? What is the procurement for? Um, and that ties in with providing the evidence that the procurement is indeed pandemic related. So anything to do with PPE, ventilators, etc., will all be quite clear. But there may be other areas which are properly pandemic related that you can um, include in your decision making. And include evidence that the requirement is for immediate needs and not for future needs, um, which you could accommodate by running a procurement in accordance with the ordinary timescales. So using these flexibilities isn't um, an option for stockpiling, for example. It's about meeting the immediate needs and then your future needs, hopefully, um, once things calm down, you'll be able to run uh, a procurement in the usual way. I think, as Andrew has mentioned um, earlier, remember the requirements of your standing orders and your financial instructions. Typically, there will be a waiver in those, but don't forget to include that in the decision-making process and the record. One of the questions that uh, we've been asked by some of our clients who are framework providers is whether they can extend their frameworks uh, beyond the four-year period. The framework provider or central purchasing body is in a slightly odd position because generally they are the facilitator of goods and services to um, trust, for example, and they're not actually the ones who require the supplies in this particular scenario. So the framework provider would be extending for the benefit um, of those members that it serves and who need the supplies. So 
the justifications that Oliver's outlined for making direct awards, extending contracts, they're all clearly focused on those bodies that have the procurement need rather than the central purchasing bodies. But having said that, uh, looking at it in a, in a pragmatic way, the role of the framework provider was clearly to support its member organisations. Oliver has noted that using um, a framework um, as a route to market is perfectly uh, valid. And this is one of the options that the PPN talks about. So if the central purchasing body is can legitimately extend the framework agreement. It seems to us that this is a this is a good thing to do for its members. So you could see, though, however, that a challenger might say, "Well, you know, you're extending this framework, but that isn't the only route to market for a trust or another contracting authority." Uh, and it's for the purchaser to take advantage of the flexibilities in the PPN. We don't know whether someone would take such an approach. Um, it's probably unlikely in the current situation, but these are unusual circumstances. Everybody's trying to navigate the best way through for the benefit of um, patients and stakeholders. So our initial views are that provided that the framework provider has a legitimate route to extend the framework, um, that's probably a good thing in terms of increasing the market capacity. The other question that we have been asked uh, more recently is, what about the fact that we may not have uh, enough evaluators, um, we might not have sufficient procure procurement team staff to run processes? That might be because of illness and absence from the office, or it may be because, more likely, those staff have been assigned to other tasks during the pandemic. That's clearly a trickier assessment. Um, clearly, in order to be able to run a process, you need expertise internally. You need your procurement team staff. You need people to evaluate the bids that are returned, or at least you, be able, you need to be able to source it from somewhere else. So if this expertise isn't available as a result of the pandemic, um, then you can see why there would be an issue in running a process now that you could run properly. However, the lack of internal capacity is not specifically dealt with in the PPN. And usually, procurement law is pretty unsympathetic uh, to simply leaving things too late, failing to get in um, additional staff, for instance. But um, again, looking at it pragmatically, COVID-19 is a reason outside of your control. And maybe, in some circumstances, um, a, perfectly acceptable to look at the fact that you don't have a uh, current evaluation team or sufficient procurement team staff to look at a direct award of some sort. Again, though, it's about making that risk assessment. How long do you really need that procurement to be in place uh, in order to minimise the risk of challenge before you're able to run a full process again in due course? The other question that we have been asked is, um, at this present time, I'm due to put out an OG notice for X, but I don't think the market is likely to respond or the market is unlikely to be able to bid because they're busy on pandemic-related um, activities. Again, the flexibilities are designed more for the procurement of requirements to meet the immediate crisis. Um, as I mentioned earlier, obvious examples like ventilators and PPE. And procurement law, looking at it um, strictly, suggests that you should advertise the opportunity because it's for the market to decide whether it wants to bid, has capacity to bid. 
And so if a supplier decides not to bid, that's their decision, but the opportunity has been given. So, again, risk-based assessment. You need to think about, is it better to advertise this opportunity and wait for the market to tell us that it can't meet it, because at least then we have complied with our procurement or obligations, or do we simply um, take our information that we understand to be the case in terms of the state of the market and make a decision based on that? Again, all about the risk and how you decide you're going to deal with that. The level of risk. Um, is always very difficult. As we've discussed previously, it's a case-by-case -case assessment, and it's always um, going to be that way. There is no blanket um, assessment that we can give you on this podcast or indeed would give you uh, in any advice note. What you're looking at is the risk assessment of relying on the ground. Have you got sufficient reasons? What is the market example? And you're looking also at the likelihood of challenge materializing. So is it likely at this current point that if you were to make an award, uh, a direct award, let's say, uh, for reasons related to the pandemic, for um, a short-term gap solution to particular supplies, is it likely that someone would challenge that? Probably not. Um, obviously, if someone does challenge a decision you've made, then the normal rules in the public contracts regulations will apply. So depending on whether you've made the award or not, will depend on the remedies that are available. In terms of whether the market is actually uh, able to challenge, I think at the minute there are a number of scenarios that means that the likelihood of challenge may not be high at the minute, um, but that won't last. And that's primarily around suppliers themselves being um, stretched to capacity anyway, so probably may not have capacity to bid for further requirements. There is also the... Um, obvious question of PR. Um, any supplier threatening to um, sue the NHS at this stage for failing to go out to competition is likely to get absolutely walloped in the press, I would suggest, uh, and in social media. So that in itself, at this current stage, and I would emphasize that that's not um, a scenario that's going to last forever, is one of the things that will mean that your risk assessment of challenge may be lower simply because of that um, fact. And also remember that when the court, um, if it does have to come and look at your decision and it will look at your audit trail and the reasons you made the decision, it will the court will look at that retrospectively, i.e. it will look at the scenario at the time that you made um, the decision. And uh, if we take the um, Dyson ventilator decision, of course, in that, in that scenario, as we know, the, the government placed an order um, subject to regulatory um, approval for some ventilators which it required urgently. So we look at the grounds, direct award, um, et cetera, et cetera, and we can see why that decision was made at the time. However, um, the specifications had to be changed, the ventilator had to be redesigned, um, so it could attach to the pipes delivering the medical delivering the medical gases within hospitals. And eventually the process was abandoned. Had it continued to award, you could see that looking back, the court would say, well, hold on, there were all these delays in getting regulatory approval, the specification changed. In that time period, you could have run an accelerated procedure, for example. So you do need to keep an ongoing eye on your procurements to make sure that you're still meeting the requirements of any uh, exemption or uh, flexibility that you're relying on. And as I've mentioned before, as time goes on, it will be harder to justify that the requirements are unforeseen. 
um, clearly at the start of a pandemic, that's very easy to prove. Six months in, much more difficult. The market may start to take a different view, may start to see direct rewards during that period as less uh, compliant. Um, it might be that they start getting a little braver about um, challenging and so on. So again, the time, the time that passes uh, is clearly important. And in terms of remedies, ultimately, if someone um, were to challenge, clearly the most uh, draconian remedy is um, that a the claimant can go for is a declaration for ineffectiveness, i.e. cancels the con contract that was put in place, civil financial penalty and damages. And there are very few grounds available for that, as you know, but one of them is failing to advertise a contract when uh, you ought to have done under the PCR. Again, looking at that, it's difficult for us to see that a judge would possibly entertain um, an application for a declaration of ineffectiveness uh, if um, a trust has relied on one of the uh, flexibilities, for example, it was unforeseen. Um, the public interest in actually making that declaration uh, must, will be weighed up by the court in terms of that and the breach. So again, that would be an interesting um, scenario that we would keep, um, keep an eye on if any claims were brought to see what the court's approach would be to decisions that had been made during this current period. I'll hand over to Andrew. Um, so thank you, Deborah. Um, so what, we, what we've looked at is um, your ability to um, procure uh, urgent requirements or to vary existing um, contracts. Um, what we've also been asked is whether or not um, the pandemic gives you a uh, reason to delay or abandon a, um, a current process. Um, so we just want to very briefly um, cover that because um, whilst it is possible to um, abandon processes, that's not a risk-free approach and um, also there will be questions as to how long you pause a process. So um, taking um, Taking abandonment, um, I'm looking here at abandonment um, because you um, don't have the resources, etc., internally to deal with it, rather than stopping a process to make a direct award, because clearly that would be uh, more risky. Um, but if we if we talk about abandonment, and this applies both uh, now and also for any uh, future processes, it is always possible for you to abandon a tender process prior to a contract award. However, in doing so, you need to consider your uh, procurement law obligations in doing it, and the primary test is whether you have a proportionate and non-discriminatory reason for the abandonment. Um, generally, an authority has a broad discretion to um, abandon the process. For example, if you've made an error, you know, there's a change in the surrounding circumstances or something, something becomes new that you, you weren't aware of. Um, you, um, those have been shown to be justifications that have uh, permitted a lawful abandonment. Um, the courts don't require you, for example, to show that abandonment was your only option. Um, but of course, if you're abandoning for a uh, discriminatory reason or for a non-proportionate reason, then that is uh, something that is capable of challenge. Um, and there have been um, a couple of challenges uh, recently that have dealt with abandonment. So the Amy decision, the Amy Highways and West Sussex County Council, uh, which we've uh, done um, articles on and have dealt with in our 
seminars, um, there a, a challenge was brought on an unlawful abandonment, and effectively the court said that just because you abandon the process doesn't mean you prevent a claim continuing against the first decision. Um, and then earlier this uh, year, a very recent case, Ryehurst and Whittington, um, has also um, addressed the uh, abandonment decisions. Um, and it is clear that challengers are prepared to uh, challenge um, a decision to abandon if they think that has been um, unlawful. In that case, um, there is a, a very detailed analysis of what would be um, a lawful reason and what would uh, and not and not and what would not be, and how the court would um, assess it. So if you are thinking about it, that is a, a case worth looking at. Um, and the thing to remember if you are abandoning a decision is Regulation 55 requires you to give reasons for the abandonment, um, and it, once you are given reasons to the, uh, the bidders as to why you are abandoning, uh, if they are going to come out and show that there was not a proportionate or non-discriminatory reason, uh, that is something um, that could uh, be uh, challenged. So if you are going to abandon a decision, we strongly recommend, as we always do for all procurement law uh, decisions, is you have a detailed audit trail. You include what your reasons in your Regulation 84 report. But remember, your audit trail will be disclosable in the event of a challenge. So, of course, always take care as to what is in your audit trail. And it is also worth checking your bid documents as to whether or not you excluded any uh, wasted bid costs, for example. So, look, you can abandon the process if you don't think you have the, uh, the resources to do it. We've been speaking to one client who um, the process can continue because the procurement team can do it, but the clinicians can't give them answers as to what their requirements are. So I think there, rather than keeping suppliers holding on, it would be uh, lawful to uh, abandon it. Um, but remember, if you do abandon the process, when you rerun it, depending on how late in the day you've abandoned it, uh, you need to make sure that your process is, um, is fair and you're not using information you've gleaned from the first process, which is why pausing a process may be uh, more suitable. Um, I think suppliers at the minute, whether or not they've got capacity, whether or not you've got capacity to, uh, to run processes at the minute, they may appreciate you pausing the, uh, the process to allow things to become uh, a bit calmer. But of course, the longer you pause a process, the greater the risk that the market changes. And given the um, economic uncertainty that uh, the pandemic is causing, what will the, the position be with new suppliers? Uh, what will be the position with um, existing suppliers? potentially going out of business, etc. Will the market be different? So the longer you pause something, you're going to need to give greater thought when you um, restart on pause, however you want to describe it, um, whether or not actually you'd be better off stopping and, and starting again. So it is possible to do, but it's just making sure that that thought process has, has gone through and the, the audit trail is recorded. As the final section in this talk today, we thought we'd briefly cover a look to the future and what the new normal might look like because whilst it's clearly important to consider what's happening now it's also important to think about what the impact of COVID might have on the market and procurement practice more generally so looking at the future and the challenges and opportunities that might arise at the moment the comments I'm about to make are clearly more in the nature of predictions or questions and they don't have an immediate answer but what we what we do is raise them and then we can of course issue news flashes and discuss them at seminars and give advice on them when the position becomes clearer and we've had an opportunity to look at how they actually develop rather than what our predictions will be. So the first point that we wanted to make was that 
the future market position here looks like it might be quite different and unpredictable. And you can see that the size and scope of the market may also change and how you would react to that. So, for example, it's clear now that we're likely to be facing a recession and possibly the worst in 100 years. And it's important to think about the impact this could have on the current market providers and assessing their financial suitability and general reliability and the sort of measures you might want to put in place, for example, at the SQ stage when looking at that. You can also see that the market might in the future look quite different. For example, in the PPE market, everyone will have seen lots of new entrants without track records and without necessarily having completely reliable supplies or supplies that meet CE requirements. So how will their suitability be assessed and how can you make sure that you're getting what you're paying for? And you can also see that there's likely to be more competition in the market, particularly in areas affecting the NHS such as PPE, but also the global demand for these products could cause difficulties. And this could include from countries not caught by the PCR and the directive and that don't have to comply with procurement law. So we're not yet clear how this will play out, but you can see that some of the stresses on the market and on your supply chains potentially carrying on or changing and you need to react to those in due course. There's also potentially an impact on how you procure more generally. So for example, lots of clients recently have seen the market approaching them rather than them issuing an advert and then the market responding to that advert. So there's almost a reversal in the dynamic. And how do you manage that dynamic in accordance with your duties under the regulations and particularly with your transparency and equal treatment duties in mind. So you don't want to favour one supplier over another, for example, or only engage with one when you've got lots of suppliers sending you emails or ringing you up, offering you PPE uh, left, right and centre. You can see also that specifications could become increasingly output rather than input focused and that interoperability and interchangeability are likely to become more important considerations. So how will the things that you're procuring work with what you already have so that you don't cause inefficiencies there in terms of having things that don't match up or don't work together properly? You can also see the potential for direct award decisions that we discussed earlier, potentially causing level playing field issues later down the line. So for example, could certain suppliers get their foot in the door with you now, making it harder for you to comply with your equal treatment and transparency obligations in the future because they already know a lot about what your needs are and what you want, and also making it more likely for you to want to procure things that interoperate or are interchangeable with the existing supplies that you have. Another point that we'll need to consider is what you do about things like site visits interviews and presentations, which are clearly not possible to conduct very easily in the current circumstances. And some legal advisors may well argue that that's a good thing, because these activities have always been seen as particularly risky and subjective in terms of evaluating submissions and suppliers. And finally, what about if a supplier's bid team or some of it are isolating? Or similarly, what if some or all of your evaluators or procurement team are required to isolate? How will you ensure consistency if, for example, some evaluators drop out halfway through? And what does equal treatment demand in these circumstances? For example, would you be required to extend bid submission deadlines and or would they be entitled to try and extend the, ordinarily if you're looking at a damages claim, 30-day period within which they could bring a challenge? So all of this is yet to be determined, but these are just some of the issues that we're thinking about. And as we say, we'll update you on in due course. I hope you found this useful, and I'll now hand over to Andrew to wrap everything up. In summary, to cover off really what we've said, um, as, as always, what you are doing in your making your procurement 
your decision is to have a demonstrable risk assessment as to why you have done what you have done. Um, I think in the current circumstances, our advice is uh, do your best uh, and please carry on doing your best because it's um, great at the minute, um, but have an audit trail as to why you have done what you've done. So if in the event of challenge at a later date, um, the uh, you are um, your decision making is exposed then um, you have the rationale for why you did it at the time so that the court can see that uh, in the event of a challenge um, okay so thanks everyone um, I think we've come to the end of our time for today's podcast uh, we hope you found the podcast interesting and helpful um, if anyone out there does need more specific specific advice from us, our contact details are available on our website, um, www.hemsons.co.uk. Um, and also, please don't uh, forget to subscribe to, like, and share our podcast. Um, and um, if you're feeling really generous, write a review on your podcast app. Um, thank you for joining us. Keep up the great work, everyone. And please stay safe. And we look forward to seeing you when we're able to do so. Thank you. Thank you.